Hi, I'm Bob Ekblad. Welcome to my podcast, Disciple. Word, Spirit, Justice, Witness. I'm here in Denver, Colorado with my good friend, Caleb Maskell. And Caleb is the Associate National Director of Vineyard USA. He's one of uh, four, I believe, in charge of theology, theology and education. That's right. And so we're going to be talking about Christian nationalism. And um, Caleb, I just want to begin with a question. Sure. Um, okay, if I'm a disciple of Jesus, um, can I at the same time be a, a nationalist or like a patriot? Like how yeah. how do you see those two um you know, working or not working together? Well, I think a lot depends on what the words mean. My friend John Mumford often says the trouble with words is that you don't know where they've been. <laughs> and I think nationalism, patriotism, those kinds of words uh, have different meanings for different folks and they imply different things as well, right? So someone might think of a, a patriot of patriotism as just meaning that they love their country and there's nothing wrong with loving your country, right? But someone else might think that patriotism therefore implies that you should be willing to fight for your country or that you should despise other countries or think your nation is best or whatever, right? And And so there's such a range of meaning that I think at one level the answer is, well, Yes, it's possible to to love your nation, <laughs> but we need to think really carefully about what that means in the context of discipleship, right? So I personally think that it's more important to pay attention to what we mean by the words that we use than try to find work really hard to find the right label, right? So uh, maybe I'll tell a story. I uh, grew up in England. Uh, when I was nine years old, I moved to the United States. So that would be 1986, which now, now you know I'm 45 uh, for the mathematicians out there. And, and when I lived in England, I remember that only very, very rarely did I see the Union Jack, the British flag. Now, I haven't lived there in a long time. It may be different now. But I remember that it was uh, an uncommon thing to see the Union Jack flying somewhere. It was more associated with like the royal family. I lived in London, so you'd see it on official buildings, this kind of thing. But no one would be hanging a Union Jack from the front of their house, for example. At least, not that I recall. When we moved to the States, I noticed something very quickly. First was that people hung American flags all over the place. In their homes. I and mean, it's very common here in the States for people to have a flagpole on the front of their house, uh, which is fine and interesting. Uh, the other thing I noticed is that when we chose a church and started to attend our church, that there were, there was a flag in the church. So there was a, there was a, an American flag and something which I later found out was called a Christian flag, which I don't really know what the origin of the Christian flag is. I think it's on Wikipedia. If, if I remember looking it up once, I just don't remember. But the fact that there was an American flag in the church stood out to me, again, as an immigrant who didn't understand the culture, even as, as a young person, it stood out to me as a really interesting data point. Another data point that I had is when I went to school, uh, I was in the fifth grade and we were all... Uh, not required, but everybody just did stand up and recite the Pledge of Allegiance in the morning, right? A Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. And 
I remember I didn't say that and I actually had to have a conversation with my teacher about the fact that I wasn't going to do that. Uh, not so much because of my Christian faith, although I was attuned to the fact that it felt a little idolatrous, but also because I wasn't from the United States. I just moved from, uh, you know, England. So I didn't have any thought about pledging allegiance to an American flag, right? So the the reason I tell that story is because I think sometimes we don't always see the water that we're swimming in. And, or maybe like by definition, we don't, right? By definition, fish don't know that they're even in water. Uh, and so sometimes a perspective from the outside is helpful. And I remember seeing vividly, wow, this is a nation festooned in flags. And it's a nation where people feel a need to declare their allegiance to the things that the flag represents. Now, is that love of country? Sure, that, that could be, I suppose, a manifestation of the love of country. But my experience of it at the time, and I would say my ongoing experience of it, is that uh, there are implications to what pledging allegiance like that means uh, that often have to do with violence or the willingness to fight. And again, I understand that the United States as a new nation was um, essentially developed through a series of commitments and ideas about what a nation should be, not all of them good, not all of them bad, They're, but but they were ideas that needed to be brought into action through sacrificial work, and sometimes that involved violence. So I'm not, um, I'm not trying to say, I'm not, I'm not making a comprehensive statement about the way that the U.S. came into being, or that, or even saying that the U.S. or any nation doesn't need to be defended, right? I mean, there are good reasons to uh, defend your nation under certain circumstances, I think. But what I was aware of when I came to the U.S. is that the way people related to their country, the way people understood the symbolism of the flag had a kind of martial quality to it, uh, a defensiveness, almost, I would say, an aggression, um, and, and a deep emotional heart connection that was just, again, very interesting to me because it wasn't something that I had experienced in the same way in England. So the, um, time passed and, and, and I became a naturalized citizen of the U S I mean, that took 20 years or something. And when I took when I went to, you know, get my citizenship oath, um, which is interesting because Jesus has a lot to say about not, or some things to say about not taking oaths, right? So again, that you have this presumption that to be part of the United States should include openness to violence, should include taking oaths. These were things that I had been taught by my parents uh, that were to be avoided for a Christian disciple, right? And and again, I'm saying these things uh, tentatively and lightly because I know that we could say many different things about 
that. And I, 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 what I'm trying to do is, is reflect on it in real time that, that there is a culture. Oh, so sorry, I should go back. So when, so I took the oath of citizenship and, and when you do that, you're not just taking an oath, but you're also taking an oath to defend the country. Uh, and that if, if necessary, that you will participate in the nation's defense. Um, which again, as I said, there are reasons for that reasons that could be very good reasons, but it's a lot of emphasis on defense, on pledging, uh, the allegiance of your life to a country, a place where many of us just happen to be born. Others of us who have moved to the country did so for any number of reasons. Some move and don't want to, <laughs> or some are children like I was. Uh, you know, the United States is a, is, a, is a wonderful country, but it's also a place that has uh, a great deal of complexity to it. So when we say, can we love our country? Of course we can love our country, uh, but we can't love our country uncritically any more than we would love anything else uncritically. Uh, we have to love the church of Jesus Christ too, um, because, because he told us to, but even that we don't love uncritically. We pay attention to the way that the church is being led and the things it's requiring of us. And, and we're constantly asking, does life in the church align with the kind of life that Jesus calls his disciples to live? Now, I've given a long answer to a very small question. But the reason that it's long is that I think we have to have some nuance as we're talking about this stuff. Um, of course, you would know, you know, early Christians, the Christians in the first couple centuries of the church had very, very strong uh, ambiguity about whether they would serve in the Roman army, right? I mean, they, and many of them refused to do so, largely because they would be asked to kill and they believed that Christians should not kill. Ron Sider has an amazing book on this called the early church on killing. And it's uh, just really a series of documents that, that describes or that shows from early church sources, the mm -hmm. way that Christians believe if I'm a follower of Jesus, it is wrong for me to kill. And it's especially wrong for me to kill for the state to which I cannot have a higher allegiance than I do to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, if we can't have that level of nuance in our conversations as Christians, as disciples, I think from the, from the jump, we have a problem, right? So when folks say, do you love the United States? That conversation needs to be had with nuance. And if it can't be, the chances are there's some idolatry there that needs to be rooted out. Mm -hmm. All right. So you're also um, a worship leader, right, Caleb? Yeah, yeah. And so um, what, does, what does it look like to be a worship leader who's really about announcing the kingdom of God in uh, America right now where you have a rise of nationalism within a lot of Christian circles where many Christians are, you know, are part of this you know, very patriotic movement yeah. uh, that we're calling Christian nationalism? Yeah. What, what, what do you, how do you position yourself as a worship leader and how does worship... Uh, you know, relate to allegiance and, and I don't know, can you speak about that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, there's, that's such a good question. And there's so many ways to approach it. I think 
you know, the scripture is very clear that you don't light uh, what it calls strange fire on the altar of God, right? The things that we offer to the Lord as worship must be good offerings that the Lord would receive, and they cannot be idolatrous, right? So I think of worship and worship leading. I'm in the, I'm in the Vineyard Church, and uh, the way that we think about how our worship works is that it's for both encounter with God and formation by God. Right. And I think that's probably just a broadly Christian thought as well, that God calls us to worship. We come to worship at his invitation, not at our own volition. We're not trying to work our way into the presence of God, but the Lord has already invited us in to a space of encounter. And that encounter involves both invitation and then it involves our confession of sin, which is immediately followed by his embrace. Right. So we confess our sin. And in the moment that we do the Lord uh, embraces us in his forgiveness and his welcome and his reconciliation. That's at the heart of the gospel. And so in my view, our worship should follow the arc of invitation, confession and, and receiving forgiveness, and then the declaration of the gospel and a declaration of the mission of God. None of that has anything whatsoever to do with the love of country. Um, it's not against the love of country, but I think that the moment, but it's certainly not for it. <laughs> it has, frankly, very little to do with it. And the moment that we discover that there are other loves that we are trying to enfold in the manner of worship that we're leading the people of God into, we had better be really careful. The scripture is so clear about wholehearted devotion to God in the context of the church. Uh, you see this with Ananias and Sapphira, for example. Uh, I was just at, at St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and there's this 12-foot painting of Ananias and Sapphira in St. Peter's, reminding people of the stakes of worship, I mean, in, in a worshiping space. I would love to see more paintings of Ananias and Sapphira in our churches, and probably a handful fewer flags would be good as well. Um, I also think about the Lord speaking to Moses through the burning bush. If we want the fiery revelation of God, we better remember that we're on holy ground and we need to take off our shoes. We're not managing mm -hmm. that moment. The Lord is managing that moment. And we show up vulnerable. We show up humble. And we stick to the things that the Lord has told us worship is for invitation, reconciliation, gospel proclamation, and mission. Yeah, and Jesus himself um, affirms that the, the Ten Commandments really can be reduced to these two commandments of you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength, right? That's right. And your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. And so uh, if it's our whole being that is really loving the Lord, you know, body, soul, spirit, you know, that's, isn't that what worship is? Uh, isn't it like a pledging of allegiance to, 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 to God, to Jesus? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've written a whole book on this. I, I, I think that this is central to what it is for the church to worship. And I mean, it was precisely for those reasons that the, precisely because early Christians didn't want to corrupt their worship 
that they often couldn't find themselves in allegiance to Rome. Now, some people might say, well, you know, that's, that's you know, pagan Rome. Uh, the United States is different, right? That the United States is a Christian nation or a nation built on Christian principles. And, and, and there are ways in which that's true. You know, I have a PhD in the history of American Christianity. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the formation of the United States and the different influences. But again, I want to say, no matter how we can trace the influences of the gospel on the formation of American national identity, whether that be law or custom or culture or any of those things, we can never do that uncritically. And we can never do that in a manner that would allow us to say that love of country is actually love of God in a different form. And I, you know, we don't need to, I feel like sometimes we're, we're in an interesting moment culturally now where you have on the one hand, you know, the 1619 project, which to some folks feels too pessimistic because it's saying, you know, the United States was actually founded on 400 years of slavery. Therefore, everything about the United States is fundamentally corrupt into some unredeemable. And then you have the kind of reaction to that, which I think in a few years ago was the 1776 project talking about how America is this wonderful place built on Christian values and so on and so on. I think it's probably the case that if we looked at the, you know, those two projects, just as, as sort of bellwether examples, you'd find true things in, in both of them, right? But the point is that we can't be uncritical, right? The United States is a nation in development uh, with, with reform at its center. And we can say the United States has a great form of government if that's what we believe. There's nothing wrong with saying that. If, that, if those are your convictions. But the moment that you see things happening in the United States that are out of alignment with the kingdom of God, well, you got to choose your allegiances, right? We are first and foremost worshipers of Jesus in a global and historic communion. Yeah. So if I have pledged allegiance to the flag yeah. every day going through the school system, like I myself grew up in a God and country Republican mm. family mm -hmm. where the flag was really important. And my mom was a daughter of the American Revolution. Yeah. So, you know, she's had to, to be part of that elitist women's organization. She had to prove <laughs> that she was like descended from someone that came over on the Mayflower, I think. Right. And then I was a, a Boy Scout and I went all the way through to become an Eagle Scout. Yeah. Right. So I, um, I remember canvassing for Nixon as a kid, <laughs> like <laughs> famous so, Quaker Richard Nixon. And yeah. so like, uh, but for me, so for me, it, for me, when I found out about what the United States uh, had been has been doing all over the world, yeah, you know, through just the study of history and through living in Central America all through the eighties, yeah, you know, it was a it was just a huge awakening, and uh, and I've since learned that when we pledge allegiance to something in a way where it is uh, higher, you know, it's I mean the the country is a is a creature, it's a non human creation, so to yeah. speak, right? It's part yeah, of it's a principality. Yeah. In the language of Paul, yeah. it's uh, one of the principalities and powers. Yeah. You know, like if we look at Ephesians 6 or 1 Corinthians 15. That's right. right? And yeah, so if I worship those who worship the creature rather than the creator, what happens according to Romans 1? You know, our foolish hearts are darkened. Yes. Okay. And so the, it seems to me like the prophetic has really gone off the rails, um, mm -hmm. especially in, in places in the body of Christ where Christians have 
a tie to this to the nation. Yes. That has it's an unhealthy spirit tie or soul tie. Yeah. You know, I don't want to get into this very long, but like, you know, there's a soul tie, a spirit tie. Yeah. Our spirits, when there's idolatry uh, through that Pledge of Allegiance that mm -hmm. I believe needs to be cut. That's interesting. Um, yeah. In order for us to be able to step into a, a, a posture, a prophetic posture where we can speak as a child of the Father rather than as a citizen of the country. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So um, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Oh, I mean, I think it's a very interesting thought. And, and I mean, one of the things we do see, right, is that the United States came into being through um, a, a political and economic sociological process, right? The United States hasn't always existed. And, uh, you know, like every empire will not always exist, right? I mean, even the scripture tells us that directly that, you know, empires will rise and fall. And, and so I don't think we should make the United States or any nation into something that feels more permanent than the scripture tells, it, tells us that it is. And therefore, we better get our allegiances uh, appropriately aligned. Um, with respect to the prophetic, I mean, you know, that's obviously a, a, a big topic, but I, I, I think... For me, one of the most important barometers for discerning the uh, discerning the word of the Lord through prophetic words is listening to the discernment of the voices on the margins. So, for example, if we are asking ourselves, what is the Lord saying to the United States? Or what is the Lord saying about our political process? Or what is the Lord saying about the righteousness of our national cause? Or those kinds of things. We very much, in the process of discernment, must be listening to the voices of the most vulnerable, the most disenfranchised, the ones who have suffered the most in the context of our nation. And uh, that would be uh, the elderly, that would be non-white communities, that would be, you know, we can't think, uh, we, can't, we can't exactly survey children, but we can pay very close attention to the way that children are attended to and the unborn also uh, are attended to. And we must think about the ways in which uh, their witness, their testimony, to what the Lord would be saying to them about their experience of our nation aligns with what we think we're hearing prophetically. I mean, the scripture is filled to the brim with the stories of prophets prophesying falsely in order to say to a nation, you're at peace. In order to say to a nation, you're doing great. In order to say to someone in power, Keep going with what you're doing, king or leader in power. Uh, God is behind you or God is for you or this thing that you're struggling with, the prophet will say, uh, is opposition uh, that, that you'll overcome when in fact, sometimes that opposition is precisely the opposite. Sometimes that opposition comes from God. I think all of us are very, very tempted to say kind things to people in power in the hopes that we will in turn benefit from that power or get closer to the source of that power. Scripture couldn't be clearer that the role of a prophet is to do the opposite, 
which is to listen to the word of the Lord and say the word of the Lord. And most of the time, prophets are super unpopular. So um, I work, you know, with people who are undocumented immigrants and people in our jail and prison system. And our church has probably two thirds of its, uh, the people who come are, are Native American. Mm. And so we're very aware that, uh, you know, of the need to be about, you know, on earth as it is in heaven, you know, not uh, elevating our own, um, you know, our own national agenda or, you know, USA, yeah. you know, especially with Na Native Americans, right? Because right. they're the original, you know, uh, people of the land. Yeah. And, um, you know, and so I've seen too, just as a missionary that and going out to different countries, if, if I think of myself as an American, and I believe that America is the greatest nation of the world, or it's even superior to the nation that I'm visiting. If I think America is superior to Honduras, right, or to uh, where we worked for for uh, seven years, and and or to say, you know, Ghana or Zimbabwe or any country, France, England, sure, yeah. you know, am I going to be able to be an effective witness to Jesus if if I have these allegiances that? That where I think my 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 national identity or my racial yeah identity is is superior to to theirs. Of course well, not. Eh? No, I, of course not. And I mean, what comes what comes to mind for me is Philippians two, right? Jesus is and always has been co-equal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Yet he counted his equality with God, not something to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant. And that was the manner in which he was able to be born in vulnerability and become comprehensible. He made God comprehensible. He was the image of the invisible God to the whole world. If our desire is mission, we must pay attention to the way that Jesus was on mission, which was by going low, 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 low. And so not only does it just make no sense to say, well, my nation, which is contingent in history, it appeared one day or it appeared over time and it will decline over time, just as every nation has done over the years. Nations rise and fall, but God is God over them all. Not only does it make no sense to make the United States like an eternal uh, idea, <laughs> but it also is just not very Jesus-like to come in from above. We must come in from below. And this is why, uh, to your point and, and to the things I was saying earlier about listening to the voices of those on the margins, the definition of a blind spot is that it's something we can't see, right? So until we've actually cultivated the ability to hear from those who are less visible, you know, some of those I was naming earlier, Native Americans would be another very good example. Uh, I, I think it would be wise for us to speak very softly and with a great deal of humility about what we think God is saying to the nation and, and how we're bearing witness to, to Jesus. I mean, again, the church is global and historic. The Christian church existed for thousands of years before the United States came into being. There are brothers and sisters around the world today who are suffering severe persecution. Uh, and there's no reason that that persecution can't happen in our country. We would do well to not think of the nation as the goal. The goal is the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, yeah. I wanted 
to shift a little bit sure. and ask another question now. You know, we've just gone through, uh, we just went through this period of the Trump administration, you know, um, President Donald Trump being our president for, you know, for his term. And, yeah. and then, um, and now he's announced his candidacy again. And, you know, a lot of Christians got behind Trump and are behind him now. Mm. And there's this whole movement, um, you know, the, uh, the new um, apostolic reformation movement. Yeah. And out of that movement, there's some people that are on this tour, the real reawakening American tour. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, this, yeah. uh, that's been going around the country prior to the, just the recent elections. Yeah, yeah. So we have a moment right now that we're yeah. living in that yeah. is, seems like a pretty dangerous moment. I just wonder if you can speak a little bit to, mm. to the moment that we're living in and, and maybe address the, you know, the NA, NAR as a, uh, Anything you have to say about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we're obviously in a very contentious political moment. And uh, Donald Trump uh, may, operates through division and contention. Um, that's his rhetorical uh, posture towards his opponents. And so he his way of doing politics makes it, harder to speak peacefully across differences. I think he has, uh, you know, among other politicians, this is not a left-right thing. This is a style thing in my view, but I think he has contributed to inflaming uh, dialogue in our country so that people who think differently from one another have a really hard time even talking to each other at this point. So um, again, I think in everything that we do as disciples and as leaders, our plumb line is Jesus. Our barometer for whether something is uh, functioning in a manner that we should have allegiance to is whether it aligns with the way of Jesus. And Jesus is is so interesting. I mean, Jesus, obviously, Jesus is everything. But, but when Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. It's so interesting to me that he says, I'm the truth, meaning I carry in myself the, the things that you need to know about God. But he also says, I'm the way, which is, to me, speaks of the fact that we can't know things to be true about God through Jesus, but also not walk in the way of Jesus. Jesus says, to know me is to walk in the way that I walk. And in relationship to the Father, in humility, and so on and so on. Uh, so when I look at our current political moment, and I look at the way that the church is engaging our current political moment, what I see is a kind of frustration uh, about the current state of our world, both on the left and the right. But I would think anything that's trying to reawaken America has a an imagination of a of a time when America was awake and has now fallen asleep. And so it's looking back to a past that the people who presume I don't actually know much about it, but who believe that uh, people believe that America had a, a certain time when we were more godly and we'll make America great again. Or make America great again. Exactly. It's a kind of nostalgic vision of a of a past that once was. And it seems to me that that kind of thinking actually 
avoids the fundamental question in front of us right now, which is, what would it be to walk in the way and the truth and the life of Jesus? So I, I think it's very, very easy for well-intentioned people who want our country to be better <laughs> um, to, to fall into a trap of trying to return to a past which, frankly, may have felt great for some folks, but doesn't necessarily have all of the things uh, perfectly aligned that we would want for the future, right? So um, it's, I'm speaking carefully about this because I understand that there are people who engage in uh, movements like that with the best of intentions, right? I, I don't think that this is um, all intentionally ugly, but I think it's misguided. If I'm if I'm honest, and I say that with humility, I, I think it's the wrong way to think about what Jesus would call Christians to do politically. Can you can you like give a summary of of the NAR? Sure. Uh, um, again, I mean the NAR is is sort of famously hard to define. The New Apostolic Reformation, uh, because many of the people who exhibit its characteristics deny that they're part of a movement. It's not a centralized movement. Uh, that has like an office or a president or something like that. However, but there are some good books that are being written about it and articles that are being written about it now uh, that allow us to see it more clearly. But um, to pick perhaps an arbitrary starting point, I think the New Apostolic Reformation probably has its roots in the work of C. Peter Wagner, who was a missiologist at Fuller. And he... Uh, began to claim that the Lord was restoring the office of apostle uh, to the church in sort of the latter half of the 20th century. And he had many qualifiers, right? He's a smart guy. So he said, it's, you know, this is, you know, he's not denying the entire history of the church prior to, you know, the end of the 20th century and so on and so on. But he did want to say that there was a reformation happening in the context of the way that the church was being led, which would see the emergence of apostles and prophets to come alongside the work of pastors and teachers who were already functioning in the body of Christ, in his view, uh, to bring a new set of authoritative structures for church leadership, right? I mean, so far, that just sounds like an idea, right? So what? Okay, Peter Wagner thought that. Is that good or bad? Let's talk about it. But what's happened is that the folks who liked Wagner's ideas uh, seized on them and began to develop them and identify themselves as apostles. Wagner wrote a bunch of books, and then others took up the, the charge and started writing their books. And what you see is really a framework for church authority under the heading of apostolic leadership, which, of course, is a New Testament concept, right? You can, there, there are apostles in the New Testament and there's apostolic leadership that's continued throughout the history of the church. But the kind of apostolic leadership that I think we're seeing through the churches of the new apostolic reformation now has something of a Gnostic quality to it, as mm. far as I can see, in, in which uh, there, are, there are many leaders for whom their apostolic 
authority and their judgment and their leadership decisions are, in their view, only able to be submitted to other apostles. And that means then that you have a lot of people who have very, very similar views about who they personally are talking to one another about whether they're doing the right thing. So this isn't, in my view, a leadership movement, which is, in many cases, submitted to the wider body of Christ that the Lord has brought around for discernment of the things that uh, leaders should be paying attention to. But in fact, it looks and feels a lot more like very small kingdoms that are emerging around, you know, king apostles, if you like, who get to say by fiat, they get to declare by fiat what they take to be the movements of the kingdom of God in the moment that they're in. Now, again, I'm being careful because I'm sure some people who understand themselves as apostles are people who lead with humility and courage and kindness and, and lead very, very well. But the danger of a model like that is, uh, is readily apparent when someone believes that they have enough authority that they can simply declare, this is what the Lord has said. I am the vehicle by which apostolic authority is moving through the church. Uh, that's that's a recipe for tyranny and disaster. Mm. And frankly, some people might be thinking, well, doesn't the Pope do that? No. The Pope, who would be, you know, the, uh, the Roman Catholic uh, version of apostolic succession, as they call it, even the Pope doesn't lead in that manner. The Pope leads with a great deal of consultation and consensus and intentionality around the impact of uh, what he's doing for the whole church. So we, we, we must be very, very careful to recognize innovation where we see it. And innovation is not always a, a good word in, in theology or, or in church life, right? Jesus has given us a pattern and a model if we now see leaders who are claiming for themselves more authority mm -hmm. than we've seen in the past, we should be asking very careful and critical questions about that. Yeah. And on top of that, um, you know, a lot of these uh, NAR people have embraced what they call the seven mountains mandate. Yes. Where they, uh, you know, they believe that, that there are these seven realms of influence, yeah. which include government and, the economy and the arts and you know business and different things and yeah. and they believe that uh christians need to take these mountains yeah and then sort of like rule and reign from these places of power and, and that we need to be part of uh political mobilization yeah and so many of them have identified uh like the republican party platform as being you know the in alignment with the values of of, of you know christian values and yeah and the original values of, of America. And they've, and they, so they've identified the whole MAGA, yeah. you know, make America great again with, you know, with this, uh, you know, with the Republican party with, and with the kingdom, with the seven mountains. And, right. And that's where it gets really dangerous, right? Mm -hmm. Because then the church becomes just a, you know, a political, uh, you know, tool really. Well, I mean, as we were talking about earlier, I, I, I just don't think that it's possible to identify any political platform with the kingdom of God. I mean, it's absolutely reasonable to have political opinions on issues and, and those kinds of things, but there's never going to be the alignment of a specific political party with the way of the kingdom. 
um, primarily because nations are by definition divided in their loyalties, right? I mean, if Jesus tells us, you know, thou shalt not kill, <laughs> right? Or even if you have hatred towards your brother in your heart, it's as if you've killed him. I mean, all we have to do is take a like a glancing look at the at the mode of our politics, whether it be the militarization or whether it be the way people treat one another, and and on and on and on it goes to recognize that there's no alignment there with the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus has invited us into. And yes, some people would say, well, the church has been complicit in problematic things in the past, and that's true. So we should repent of those things, not keep doing that, right? Um, so. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the seven mountains thing. Uh, you know, there. I think the one of the characteristics of the new apostolic reformation, as I can understand it, seems to be a, an understanding that uh, principalities and powers um, are should be should be targeted by apostolic leadership. So there's a whole kind of spiritual metaphysics that over that seems to. Um, seems to uh, exist over top of a lot of the kind of leadership thinking. So if someone's an apostle, they have the authority uh, and to lead people into a kind of spiritual warfare by which principalities can be torn down. And in, and in place, Christians can go in to take leadership, right? So, I mean, there are good reasons, in my view, to reject that kind of thinking about spiritual warfare. And this is one of the, way, the places that John Wimber, who led the vineyard uh, until his premature death in 1997, John Wimber had big arguments with Peter Wagner about that kind of spiritual warfare thinking, because Wagner was packaging all that together, spiritual warfare and apostolic thinking, and Wimber, and hence the vineyard, kind of rejected it the whole cloth. But for biblical reasons, which we can talk about another time, <laughs> but uh, but to the degree that there are arenas of culture that the Lord, or, or there are arenas of culture that have specific influence, if the Lord wants people to have influence in those arenas, it's going to look like the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus. It's going to look like humility. It's going to look like Philippians 2, which doesn't mean you can't be a powerful person and a Christian, but it does mean that the way that you get there is not going to be through domination. The way that you get there is not going to be through some sort of dominion thinking, or frankly, it's not going to be through um, manipulating a corrupt system using the means to justify using it using using corrupt means which you justify by saying oh but in the end i'll be in power and then i can do great things this is the same kind of mentality that's uh, someone who says well when i make 10 million dollars then i'll start giving money away it's like sorry that doesn't work because you become somebody on the way to making 10 million dollars and if you're not already faithful in little how are you going to be faithful in much right? Jesus also mentioned that. So I, I see us in a very wrong-headed situation where people are trying to gain power through worldly means with the delusion that they're then going to be able to use it well for the kingdom of God. Uh, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So Caleb, um, maybe a final question. Yeah. Um, as the associate uh, national director of the Vineyard USA, you know, you're in a really important role of being able to talk about 
you know, sort of where you'd, where you'd like to see, you know, the vineyard movement. Mm. And uh, I would assume you'd like to see the whole body of Christ, yeah. you know, move in a, in a particular direction in this time that we're living in right now. What, what are some of your hopes for, you know, where uh, the church should be going yeah. ideally right now? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I have some, I have some thoughts. I think my number one hope is that we will insist that the way in which we get somewhere is just as important of, as the truth that we proclaim. The way and the truth and the life of Jesus are all one thing. So I want us to become the kind of people who can have conversations about the real life issues that politics also speaks to. But we can do that in a manner that brings glory to Jesus. The scripture says that people who don't know Jesus will know that we're Christians because of the way that we love one another. And until we can find ourselves operating in that manner, I think all the rest of the things that we might do are, uh, are just obscure. They become irrelevant. Because if we're ugly and cruel to one another, doesn't matter how righteous our agenda is, or how truthful the words coming out of our mouth are, uh, we, we're dead before we've started, right? Uh, so what I would like to see is the church growing in its ability uh, to embrace reality as opposed to ideas about one another. I would like us to become aware that when we encounter one another face to face, we're encountering people made in the image of God, people called to restore the image of God in creation, uh, who are suffering and struggling and working through hard things. If we can't do that, I think we're, we're missing some of the fundamental calling of the church. And then as we grow in that, I would like us to become prophetic voices about significant issues in the world. Christian leadership has always done that. Um, but I believe that, that we shoot ourselves in the foot if we do it with the kind of cruelty and toxicity that I think characterizes a lot of our political culture today. And I think we also shoot ourselves in the foot, even if we get there in a kind way that lands us endorsing a platform, as opposed to thinking about people. Because we must think with the one, not with the whole, right? That famous, I think it was, was it Stalin who said, you know, one death is a tragedy, a thousand deaths is a statistic, something like that. Uh, you know, and I don't recommend Stalin's leadership advice, but it's a very interesting thought that it's much more difficult to look in the face of one person than it is to make pronouncing judgments about thousands. I recommend that we I recommend, I, I think it's necessary. I think God is calling us to learn how to see our neighbor again. And if we can do that, then maybe we can make some progress on these other things too. Of course, you know, you mentioned that I work for the Vineyard, which is not a huge denomination, but it's big enough to make some of these things a little harder than they would be if you were just doing it in your own local church or local business context, because we do have to think at scale in a different way. But I think... Jesus is very, very clear about what the way of reconciliation looks like. It looks like loving your neighbor as yourself. It looks like 
um, you know, being the good Samaritan who tends to the broken person, even the person who's different from him. And so in order to live in that way, uh, sometimes we have to limit the scale at which we think we can work as Christians, right? It may be that someone is called to run for political office or even, you know, become president and so on. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to speak about that. I would just want to say that no matter what we're doing, we must be paying attention to our neighbor. We must be paying attention to the actual people in our actual lives, right? Every single person probably who listens to this has uh, a friend who's an immigrant or knows someone who's related to an immigrant or has a friend of a different uh, ethnicity or knows someone who knows someone of a different ethnicity or lives near someone in this way. I mean, these issues are not far away. Every single town and city that we live in no matter how you experience it, no matter how each of us experience it, has, has far more diversity than we ever account for, right? That's ethnic, that's uh, gender, that's sexuality, that's any number of things. And, you know, the scripture is very, very clear about how we are to treat people, even people with whom we disagree. This is not about, oh, now I have to compromise my theological conviction in order to be neighborly. Actually, it's the opposite of that. We walk with people so that they can see the love of Jesus and the way, the truth, and the life of Jesus in us. So let's learn to walk with our neighbors. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really important word right at this moment as we practically have started another, uh, you know, kind of election cycle. Yeah. You know, as we move towards 2024 and totally. here in the United States. So to be looking at the one who has a different viewpoint um, as a fellow child of God, right? That's right. And and to walk in love towards one another and, and move in honor and respect to one another, even if we may also need to agree with, disagree with one another too, right? Precisely. And you can't say, you just cannot say, I love my neighbor while you're stabbing them in the back, <laughs> right? I think that we have a, a strange idea that we can love people uh in general, while being cruel and crushing to them specifically, <laughs> right? Um, we can't love the world in general, but hate our neighbors. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus is as clear as day about this. And so to the degree that we believe it's necessary to compromise on those things in order to gain the power to do some good in the future, I think we've lost our way as disciples. Yeah. Let's just find our way back. I think it starts in our homes. It starts on our streets. And it starts with us listening a lot more. We talk an awful lot. 